China manufactures the world's goods these days. From Nike shoes to cars to military jets. But how did China manage to build up the capital and the business connections to afford the rapid expansion when it was largely an uneducated, agricultural, communist society in the 1980s? Now, the partial answer is guns. Lots of guns. You see, China actually had some of the top-line small arms manufacturing facilities with decades of expertise on how to produce small arms of all levels of quality. And following the 1979 Sino-Vietnamese War, that's where China and Vietnam fought each other, relations were actually warming up with the West. And China found a market that liked guns more than any other country on the planet. The United States of America. Now, I recently sat down with my friend Dave from Peacemaker Firearms in Las Vegas, whose family used to distribute Chinese firearms in America. And we talked about how the Chinese Type 56 Kalashnikov type rifle flourished in the US of A. Where were these rifles made? How were they made? How much did they cost? Why are these rifles considered both the best and the worst examples of the AK-47 derivatives? And how this rifle earn the People's Republic of China some of its first capital for further development. Now stick around. Maybe you'll find out some insider information on how the American market ended up helping prop up the Chinese commodities manufacturing through its own love of guns. Now, before we get any farther, a message from our sponsor, Slate Black Industries. If you like good looks and you like good kit and you need M-Lock accessories, consider SlateBlackIndustries.com, the maker of M-Lock grips and accessories. That's SlateBlackIndustries.com. Yeah, so Dave, tell us a little bit about your background story. Like, where, how, how did you get into Chinese firearms? What was your family doing back in those days in the 80s? And, and what was your core level like your childhood growing up with these things um so basically my father's um started distributing um chinese firearms here in the states uh back in the 80s and um mostly it was sks rifles ak type rifles the type 56 assault if you if you if you will um and as far as you know experience with them is you know being a nine-year-old kid, other kids have a Ruger 22, and I got SKS rifle and sub 62 by 39. So, <laughs> now the subtleties of these things—you call it a Type 56 assault—and people out there may not understand. They may get upset at the term assault. Now, the Type 56 is a designation for a family of rifles in China that shoots the 762 by 39 M43 cartridge. There are three of these firearms. One is the SKS, the Type 56 Semi, as in semi-auto carbine, the Type 56 Assault, as in the Type 56 SMG, which would be the Kalashnikov that we know, and then the Type 56 Light, the Type 56 LMG, which is the RPD light machine gun. 
I thought I'd clear that up because I know some guys are going to hear this and go like, oh, that's not an assault weapon. <laughs> <laughs> Especially what the political environment that we're in nowadays. Exactly. Yeah. It's just how it was written in, in, in the books. It's how it was defined. So anyway, sorry. So, so suffice to say, you've grown up in an environment where you're very familiar with these things. Correct. Uh, yeah. So I think uh, one thing when we were on the phone the other day, we, we sort of had this conversation about uh, China and, and the Chinese economy and how it opened its doors. And back in the day, uh, the, the story of how during that process of China developing its economy, really looking back at commodities that China had to sell and there really wasn't a lot. <laughs> so so then China turned to trying to sell to the US market and they looked at the commodities that they had and they were thinking, what do Americans like that we make? Guns hmm. and more guns. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, it, you know, you put two and two together, you get what we see back in the 80s and the 90s. But I think we ought to dial it back a little bit um, to, to really look at the story. Where did this start? I mean, first of all, where did the how did China as a peasant country end up with the technology, and how did the whole lineage of Chinese guns that were being exported uh, uh, develop from? I think we have to go back to the fifties, um, beginning fifties during the honeymoon era of between China and Soviet Union. You know, as you know, China uh, Soviet Union sent a lot of visors blueprints, production lines to China mm -hmm. to make guns, ammunition, all that stuff. And one of the most important component would be um, teaching the Chinese people how to make steel, proper steel to make guns and artillery. Because I remember during the Cultural Revolution, they were like melting pots in urns to make these pot, literally pot metal that wouldn't perform worth a damn. No, no, it won't. Because, um, you know, with the Soviet help, it kind of propelled um, China being an agriculture country into a semi-industrialized country. I think it was mm. one of the key major uh, turning point was during that time in the beginning of 50s. So that's that's when the Type 56, 1956, the, the blueprint for, it would actually be more apt to call it the AK-47 type rifle because it did directly come from the Type 3 Soviet AK-47 right. into becoming the Type 56 rifle. So that's where they got a lot of the baseline knowledge from. And and so uh, how long had they been manufacturing these up until um, for for the local consumption? Uh, for local consumption, I would say probably up until 80s or 90s or so. Because um, mm -hmm. a lot of factory closed down back in the early 90s um, because they just weren't in need, in need anymore. So a lot of factories closed down. Okay. Um, the biggest one being, you know, the original OG factory, the factory triangle six sixty six, which is called something else, you know, another factory cults. We'll we'll get into the factory code in a bit when we when we when we're talking about the actual imports in America, because I think that's a, that's interesting, uh, because the Chinese did not actually stamp the real factory codes. So to and this is something that I again, this is something I learned from Dave. Uh, they would try to conceal the amount of factories, the factory itself, uh, which factory located in what location. But anyways, I feel like one of the biggest turning points for uh, what we see the current 
Chinese Communist Party and the current Chinese society was a Vietnam War. But not the Vietnam War that Americans think we're talking about. I'm I'm more so talking about the Sino-Vietnamese War in 79, right? Right, correct. So what do you think really changed in during 79? I, I think you're going to see the change of the, the difference of two countries in terms of economics, um, China being propelled into this major uh, manufacturing hub after the war, what, you know, America and the West has helped. And you're going to see, you know, Vietnam being um, put in a really bad position after a war because of um, destroying of the infrastructure and everything else. But now, now we're actually seeing the reversing of that. We're gonna we're we're seeing all the manufacturing going to Vietnam, you know, and and decrease in China nowadays. So it's kind of interesting how that goes. But you know, during the '80s, um, I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing a major surplus of uh, rifles that we're seeing here. Because after the war, China realized a lot a lot of these rifles were um, not needed and they were inferior. So they kind of wanted to sell them and get more capital to make better and more guns, such as the Type 81s. The Type 81, that basically it was right after 79, right after the Sino-Vietnamese War. Um, I had thought the Type 81 was a mashup of the Kalashnikov and the SKS, but Dave had pointed something out to me early in an early conversation. You know, what is the Type 81? How did the Type 81 come about? So the most major common belief that Type 81 was based off on SKS and AK uh, combined, but during 1979, a, a Vietnamese sniper was actually uh, captured or killed. And next to him was a S- Soviet SVD rifle, which was a major you know, weapon platform at, at the time. Um, so it was some back reverse, reverse engineered, and Type 85, Chinese copy of Dragunov, which you had on your video, I believe, before. Um, mm-hmm. That's when that came out. And when they saw the piston system that SVD had, they said, why don't we just accurize the rifles with the, with the system as well? Because one of the major um, setbacks of Type 56 that they believe in is long-stroke piston system. And they give the rifle in the bad accuracy that they they believe they had but i don't think that was the whole thing i think it was due to shooters air more than anything else but type 81 combining with the svd system does have a better accuracy in terms of full auto fire so was in in 1981 were they mass trying to switch over to the type 81 and and dump the 56s it, it was a it was a slow process um in during 81 when it first came out it had problems too and I don't think it was put in the battlefield until like 82 or 83. And they saw a lot of good results mm-hmm. from those rifles. That's when they start seeing, oh, we got to get rid of SKSs and AK-type rifles and switch over to these completely. But Type 81, as you know, wasn't used for very long either because of uh, a lot of other political reasons. Because mm-hmm. they never wanted to be seen as the Russian's little brother kind of type. It was over pride than anything else. Oh, that's a that's a long story too. The whole like Sino Vietnamese or Sino Russo relationship, right there. Oh yeah, we can go back hundreds, hundreds of years. If you want to go way back, we can go back to the Mongolian time too. Okay, so I think this is the seventy nine was 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 the most interesting era to really dissect because seventy nine you're talking about readopting a or adopting a new weapon system for the PLA. And slowly trying to inject it in, but also uh, Chairman Deng, uh, Deng Xiaoping, 
right. was also pushing for um, opening the Chinese economy, uh, basically trying to become uh, more compatible with the world and, and recognizing how poor China was in the 80s. Uh, it's kind of like what we talked about earlier, right? What, what does China produce that is of quality? And what does America want? What does the world want that China would produce back then? I'll tell you, it wasn't iPhones. That's for sure. Or Nike shoes. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you look around and the only thing really that was around that China was producing were firearms. Right. Yeah. And so I think this is, this is a point where we start looking at the Chinese Type 56 rifle. Uh, the Kalashnikov version, to be specific, because the interesting thing about this, you always hear people. It's it's on two extremes, right? Either either they're saying a Type Fifty Six is the worst Kalashnikov ever to be made, probably someone from the Middle East or Africa looking at something that they have in their hands, right? Or someone saying, "Wow, the Type Fifty Six is the best version of the Kalashnikov ever made." Okay, I mean, this is this is a long, uh, this is a big onion to peel back. What is Norinco? What is Polytech? And how did China have such a mixed reputation on the weapons that they had exported? I, I think your experience might vary depending on where you're at. Your location plays a major part of everything. Um, America, of course, being the most, um, the biggest market there is in the world. Um, of course, quality is going to be a lot better, and because we're also paying a lot more too. Well, who were they competing with back then in the U.S. market? Um, it was mostly Norinco and Polytech that was the major players. You know, of course, no, no, no. As in, who were they competing? What what other firearms were in the U.S. market or U.S. circulation? Um, in the eighties, I would say HK from Germany. You know, of course, remember the HK ninety one, ninety threes that were in the country. AK-wise, you had the Madis from Egypt, but they were selling for $9.99 at the time. And that was a lot of money for guns because Colt was selling for, what, $800 for SP-1 rifle. So so the AR-15 was about $800. Right. And then you had how, the, much, how much were the G3s and the um, HK-33s and MP5s? 93 and 91s, I remember, uh, I think they were like in the fives, $550 range. Okay. Yeah, you get slang and, you know, three mags or something. But it was nothing like the package deal that Chinese AK offered. You get a rifle, a drum, six magazines, a thousand rounds of free armor-piercing ammo, all for $200. If you bought them by the pallets, price will even go lower. Wow. To like 169 or something. So yeah, there's no competition when it comes to uh, value of money. But even even then, there's there was a lot of people that complained about the quality. I don't know why, but... Uh, they said it was still cheap for whatever reason, even though they were deep salt, salt blued. The, the firearms is fantastic. You know, um, there's no, no other platform they give for the money for that kind of quality. Now, the I mean, one thing I remember, there's an article where the the author went into China and the, he was going through these mud huts, and it was. It looks like he was in Afghanistan, looking in some right, hyper pass type of manufacturing. The workers had tank tops, working yeah. on hand tools, and yeah. yeah, it straight up looked like the 1950s. And I mean, 
I don't think that really matches up with the quality of output because some of those items that were pushed out, like the Norinco copy of the 1911 was using some of the hardest grade steel. It's 5100 series tool steel compared to the 4100 series steel that you see in American made 1911s, meaning the competition guys love them because they were the hardest steel 1911s that you could just hammer all day. Right. And gunsmiths hated them because you needed to buy special carbide bits to do any type of work, any type of milling on the Norinco uh, 1911s. The gunsmiths made people buy the, the tool bits for it because they would break their bits. And so it didn't add up to me when I learned about this. It didn't add up because though you don't, first of all, you don't have that type of steel stock if you only work in a tool shed no, to make no. to make guns. But second of all, the, the machining quality is actually quite decent. Right. I mean, but, I, I, I've even heard that they, they had like West German machinery that, that they imported into China, but that's right. on a rumor basis. So I don't know if that's true. Right. I mean, if, if anybody have any knowledge of manufacturing, um, you know, the hardest part about manufacturing is consistency. And with the hundreds of thousands of millions of rifles that we get in this country, the consistency, the, the uh, consistency that I see is really, really top notch. There is no way you could do that with hand tools and, you know, hem filing and all that stuff. It had to be done on really nice, sophisticated tooling and machines. The fin finish mm. is just fantastic for, you know, for uh, a mud hut, to say the least. Yeah. Now, I feel like we needed to add a little bit more context to this part of the conversation. Um, specifically, if we're using Triangle 66 or Factory 626 as a, an example. Um, now, some of these facilities in China were absolutely some of the best manufacturing facilities that the People's Republic of China had. Uh, Factory 626 was actually more of a manufacturing campus rather than just a factory, meaning people didn't go there and go back home after they went to work. People lived there. At the height of it, the Factory 626 contained 2,000 workers, of which 6,000 people lived on the premise of Factory 626, meaning they had security, they had a hospital, they had birthing rooms, they had um, recreational facilities, they had uh, feeding facilities, everything, even schools for kids to attend K through 12. That's to include research and development facilities. And so factories like this draw lineage. In fact, ironically, the same factory that would provide the and sell the Type 56S rifles to America the same factory manufactured the Type 50 uh, Papashaw PPSH-41 submachine guns to fight Americans during the Korean War. And so I think the key takeaway that we should look at here is that China had the ability to manufacture top quality products with very good machining. Um, but much like China nowadays, the same country that produces kids' toys with lead paint inside of it uh, also produces really nice iPhones. It just depends on which market they're selling to. And in the case of the Type 56s, if you're selling to top dollar markets like America, certainly they would contract some of the best manufacturing facilities. 
Whereas, if you're manufacturing for, let's say, Africa or the Middle East, probably the QC would slip a little bit. On a side note, though, PLA actually serialized all the internal parts. So they could trace it back to, let's say, which worker, which shift was manufacturing some defective arms. And by the way, your factory uh, workers had their families that lived there. Put two and two together. You do the math. I know you're a big fan of M1A platform. Even those Polytech imported M1As, the, the, the barrels are fantastic mm-hmm. on those rifles. Yeah. Oh, yeah. of course. Yes. The barrels are great. And the uh, anyone who is in the M14 world knows that the Polytech M14 receiver is one of the most in-spec receivers with made with some of the best steel out there. And so it is highly sought after to make M14 builds, which is what my M21 is is built from. Which, right. fun story about that, the uh, the gunsmith who who worked on the M21, he's, a, he's an AMU gunsmith mm-hmm. uh, from the Vietnam into the Cold War era. A dude hates anything made in China. So whenever I sent that to him, the first phone call I got from him was like, Henry, what the bleep are you bleeping you know, bleep is just like exploitives throughout the whole thing, but he did it, and it is a fantastic shooting machine. Right. You know, back in LA, there was a lot of Taiwanese-owned gun shops, Taiwanese and Korean-owned gun shops. A lot oh, of really? Yeah, there was a lot. Yeah, there was actually a lot of Taiwanese gun shops out there in LA. Uh, uh, South Korean-owned too. So another interesting story is back in, before the riot happened, uh, my father's company approached a lot of gun shops and koreatown wanted to sell type 56 to them and they didn't like it because they said it was a communist weapon uh-huh so it so, wasn't just it wasn't just with the americans it was imagine also... imagine if they had the type 56s on the roof versus m1 carvings <laughs> yeah i guess that leads me to to look back at the consistency you're talking about the consistency but norinko is not a factory polytech is no. not a factory they're they're merely importers they're merely importers of uh, uh, arms. Norinco actually did more than arms. They did toys, you know, buses, motorcycles. They did a lot of different variety of products to different parts of the world. Uh, Polytech mostly did small arms. So how did they get that type of consistency? How many factories were there working on these things anyways? Um, I, As far as guns-wise, I think there's only three. Uh, actually, there's more than three. Um, but the major ones that we get here, uh, the rifles that we get here, they're all manufactured in three different factories. The 626, 386, and then the 416. Hey, Future Henry here. Now keep in mind that Dave is only talking about the Type 56 Kalashnikovs that came to America for export reasons during this time frame. Now, there are other factories that also manufactured Type 56s, namely uh, what we know as the SKS factory, Triangle 26, which is actually Factory 296. And they manufactured more than SKSs. They manufactured Type 56 uh, Kalashnikovs. They manufactured Type uh, 85 Dragunovs, Type 81 Carbines, of course, the SKSs. And then also later the Type 95 uh carbines and as of recently the type 03 carbines so uh there's more factories in that but those are the main three that dave is talking about the main three that supplied kalashnikovs to america 
Now that leads us to another interesting concept that that we've been talking about offline quite a bit. The factory codes. Right. You don't find a 626 stamped Kalashnikov in America. No. In, instead, you find a Triangle 66. Why is that? Uh, like you were saying, Henry, I think it was more of a um, art of deception. It was to code um, which factory it came from and also the locations and everything else. But real reason, I, honestly, I, I don't know. I don't know what the real reason is. I think it's just a way to shield exported items to trace back to the origin of the factory. Yeah, some, some dodgy cousin, cousin Harry stuff going on back there. Oh, yeah. You just stamp a different number on there. No, that that's actually, I mean, it's interesting. That's something I wanted to bring up because it's it's an interesting concept of how the Chinese government works as opposed to the Russians uh, on that end. I mean, the Russians... Right, the European saying, stuff all match their factory. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's a saying in the USSR, the, the, their power is based on the projection, not the real power, whereas the Chinese go by the art of deception. Right. And how do you camouflage things in plain sight? And so it's it's a really different approach onto these things. I th- I find that absolutely fascinating. Right. For so sure. so back in back in the day, right? So we're talking about the this uh, the eighties onwards, and and the market for Chinese imports really came about, um, and they were trying to push the highest quality of firearms to compete with the European and American firearms in America. Uh, what about the stuff that went over into Africa or other third world nations? Because there's a lot of Type 56s in the Middle East and Africa. Right, right. I, I think they're more in line of uh, military spec rifles, you know, with the number of barrels of Type 56 that we have. And, you know, of course, they're all fully automatics. So yeah, the stuff that we get here is definitely um, pampered by different workers, I think. Um, the fin finish is just much, much better. I, I've seen pictures of uh, newer um, AKs being imported into Europe, and they don't look, they look nothing like we, what we used to get. They have that cheap paint, like, on the Russian AKs. Uh, I mean, I don't want to offend Russian fans, but, you know, the, 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 oh, okay. the paint, the, paint yeah. the same paint that you get on Madis and, and other European AKs. They're not glued It's, u- it's utilitarian. Right, right. I think there there has been a definitive quality drop that that we've Definitely. seen. You know, it seems to me that they were matching the market. They were trying to they were trying to hit up the market in um, uh, that they were operating in. I mean, from the dealer, do you have like from a dealer's perspective, do you know what kind of profits people were making from from the from the Chinese imports back then? Um, the last figure that I heard back in uh, for SKS is um, it was about three dollars us um for ak's was about five whoa, 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 whoa. you mean they bought the entire unit for three or five dollars i mean the, there's no cost because for norenko it was working directly with the government so for them it was pretty much no cost but um to to make them in the factory it was like that it was like five dollars in a factory so even at 200 dollars with the free mag and the ammo there was still a lot of money to be made so that so there's a huge margin for these Chinese. Oh, yeah, huge, huge margin. Yeah, I wish I, I wish the gun business was still like that. I wish the gun business still have margins like that, but unfortunately, we don't. 
Yeah, I mean, because nowadays you were talking about retail, you'd be happy with 20%. Uh, yeah, if I got lucky. Yeah. yeah. Oof. So, so for for the time being, and how, how did the how did the U.S. market receive these things when when they when it came uh, through? When they first came in, like like you were saying about the gunsmith, like that gentleman right there, everybody who's been to uh, Vietnam War, they they hated the weapons because they were getting shot by these weapons made by the same people. So, um, but the people that really like guns, enjoy guns, um, and for people that wanted to use them as investments later on, they bought them by the pallets. And it was cheaper to buy by the pallet too. <laughs> the guy who brought in the NDM eighty fives, his company was in El Monte at the time, and he actually went to my dad back in then, I think in ninety three or ninety four, and asked him uh, if these are uh, great items to sell here. But he said, "Who's going to buy these for five hundred bucks?" My dad didn't think they would sell, and he wanted really? retail four ninety nine on those the NDMs because he was getting them for like hundred bucks. Uh, so those were the more expensive items. Right, because they got the nicer wood. That's why he, he was the guy that had the idea of having the velvet case, remember, the really nice ones? Yeah. Now they're like $12,000, the velvet case yeah. ones. You and your family have a really interesting perspective on this, you know, having basically limited access to the back end, but then full access to the front end in, in America. Uh how did the American and European manufacturers receive this? Um, I, I don't think they took it too well, uh, especially I think uh, Colt felt the most amount of heat because of 1911s. And a lot of people didn't know about this, but actually they were in line to bring uh, in AR-15 copies as well mm. because China had toolings from the Philippines, real Colt toolings to make the AR-15 copies. So they're about to bring those uh, retailing for two ninety nine compared to Colt's eight hundred dollars. The barrels might be a little less quality than Colt, but you know mm -hmm. the um, the BCG, the uh, bulk air group, and everything else is all full auto rated. It's not the you know remember remember when Colt had the sporter rifles, mm -hmm. the whole semi automatic yeah. It's nothing like that for a lot cheaper. And then you had the M one A's coming, you had the nineteen elevens. So it was. U.S. manufacturer, I think, filled the most amount of heat, especially coal and Springfield. Damn. So what happened with the Chinese imports to the U.S. market? As, as everybody knows, you know, who likes guns, um, 1989, Bush Sr. signed the importation ban. Um, I, I think it was mostly targeted um, Chinese rifles more than anything. Because other countries weren't bringing, I mean, HK, HK Germany didn't bring a lot of rifles in in large numbers, those mostly mm -hmm. Chinese rifles. You don't have a lot of Madis. You know, you have very limited Madis in here. You have very limited other imported rifles. Uh, you have Mitchell Arms from Yugoslavia that was bringing Yugo rifles in. But that mm -hmm. was also very limited numbers, like in the thousands. It was nothing in, in, in terms of scale like a Chinese rifle importation. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're talking about hundreds of thousands and the millions later on with the Mac 90s. I mean that's that's an extreme profit margin though. I mean if you're talking about three dollars to five dollars per unit, and then you sell them for how much did you say like one hundred fifty? One hundred fifty if you bought them by the pallet, or one hundred one sixty nine if you bought them by the pallet. SKS is for about ninety nine dollars, sixty nine dollars if you bought them by the pallet. So I mean that's insane. That's like printing money off of trees. Yeah, pretty much. Huh. Yeah, ammunition. I don't think 
the government actually wanted to charge money for ammunition because they just have big surplus of that, especially after mm-hmm. the Sino-Vietnamese War. So that war actually played a major part in terms of both economy, uh, economic growth for both countries, both China and Vietnam, and then for the arms market here in the States. Mm. So following that, following that ban, um, what did it do to the Chinese arms industry? Um, at first, they tried to cope with it. Um, they tried to do, as you know, the Mac 90 stuff, the sporter, the so-called sporter rifles. A lot of rifles were already here. They were sitting in containers, so they had to be converted locally um, to put on that, you know, the the sporter stock. You know, so so let me let me let me let me kind of interject here. So um, some of the audience may not be familiar with this, especially some some who are overseas. Uh, following the assault weapon ban itself, banned certain features that were on right. firearms. So y- your pistol grips could not exist. Threaded barrels. Threaded barrels could not exist. Yeah, yeah, so the workaround on that is to shave the bayonet lugs off with a grinder, uh, is to tack weld a nut over the threads uh, right. so the threads were no longer exposed. And the pistol grips, um, you couldn't just take it off. You needed a stock that had a thumb hole inter- integrating the pistol grip to the back of the stock, and that would count as as a stock, and then that would be legal to import so it was a it was sort of like a if you had if you had if china made a bunch of cars with four wheels and america said that you had to ban for uh cars with four wheels so then in order to sidestep around that you add like a fifth wheel in the back and you you like basically screw a fifth wheel in the back and it's an importable uh merchandise that's basically what they did right it was butt ugly yeah yeah. That that big fat sporter stock, it was yeah, it was it was yeah. So was so bad. in in a five wheel car example, that fifth wheel would have zero use. It would just no. literally be there because it, it sidesteps the band itself on right. a four wheel vehicle. Anyways, sorry. So so that that brought a lot of what we call Mac nineties, the post ban era Chinese uh, guns. I mean, how did the fire the Chinese firearms industry cope with that? Um, it, one, it was the sporter rifles that was brought in and also more pistols were brought in because pistols wasn't considered as a, a military, a military rifle. So a lot of, uh, type 54 pistols, type 59 pistols were brought in during that time too. And they all had great margins too. Those, uh, type 54 pistols were dirt cheap to manufacture. Uh-huh. Of course, you know, for a lot of audience out there, it was uh, the copy of Tokorat pistols. Yeah, well, we call it in Hong Kong the Black Star pistols. I used to call it the poor man's uh, 5.7, basically, because it had a yeah. bigger round, 7.62, yeah. 5.25. And then you have the Type 59 pistols, which is the copy of a Macaron. I feel like the 80s, you know, like this turned into almost a cash crop. You know, because these were state-owned facilities that were turning these things out by the droves. Uh so China was able to to garner a whole lot more on the income side for developing of other industries because in the 80s and the 90s that's when they started it's kind of like what you were saying the Nike shoes and some more civilian centric uh, industries started to kick up you know the the whole made in China label started to appear on American shelves because the factories started angle themselves more towards consumer goods the consumer good market production right. was increasing 
But that was the initial capital that they needed to establish some of these factories, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, even though a lot of factories um, in the civilian market is owned by individuals, but, you know, with exporting small arms and ammunition, they propelled the, uh, the economic growth over there, for sure. So what, what happened to those factories? What do they make now? Um, as far as I know, a lot of factories closed down, actually. So what, if you have a Chinese AK made in factory either 626, 416, they would never be seen again because those two factories closed down in the 90s already. And you have the 386 still in operation, but they're not making too many rifles. It's pretty much like in a semi-closing stage also. Uh, are they? Do they still have a market that they're supporting? Uh, probably Middle East or Africa, I would assume, because I never see them here. And yeah. I know SDM rifles have to come, come from somewhere, so... Uh, I assume they come from 386 factories. There's SDM for, for the audience out there is a Sino Defense Manufacturing. It's right. basically like a rebranded Norinco. Yeah, Norinco Jr. or Norinco right. 2. Right. <laughs> but the um, looking back, that's that's kind of in that's really interesting. And it's kind of I mean, looking at the end of an era, the especially I have a I have a Triangle 66 uh, Type 56 as well. And I think one thing that you showed me in the past is that the the rifles themselves are heavier. Like the steel is denser. I, yeah. I don't know what it is with it. Like, um, do they use the same 5100 series steel? I mean, do they use any type of special steel wood, like a uh, special steel stock or something? I'm not sure what steel they actually use, but um, from what I heard, they have they used to make artil artillery um, next door to um, to the gun manufacturing factory. So maybe they have they have to use artillery cannon steel, just like how uh, uh, I think HK barrels use that also. Mm -hmm. The cannon steel, um, it's yeah. it's a denser steel. It's a very tough steel, and but for whatever reason, Type sixty, uh, the factory sixty six stuff is always over gas, more over gas than any other factories. Mm, I'm sure you notice that too. Yeah, the recoil is yeah. a, it's a little more from factory sixty six. Three eighty six by harsh. far. Yeah, three eighty six by far has the smoothest shooting experience, and then I would rate four sixteen next to that. Um, okay. In terms of fin finish, three eighty six also had the best fin finish as well. Where, which one was 386? 386 is in, located in Deep South in uh, Fujian Province. Okay. And what about 416? 416 is in Shandong Province in the eastern part of China. That's okay. It's right next to Korea. It's like a, a, a port city uh, really close to Korea. So that's – okay. So that's that's an interesting thing to talk to talk about was the um, – it sounds like force was 626 up in the northeast as well? Yeah, six two six is the OG factory. That's right next to Soviet Union, pretty much like border borderline to Soviet Union, way so far it, up in the north. The I've actually I've worked in Heilongjiang before when you know when oh, I really? was first coming out of college. Right. Um, I was I, it was uh, I was a journalist, uh, and so I went over for a, to cover a, an event, uh, but it was in February. It was oh, that's freaking. Cool. Freaking cold. People, this is right next to Siberia. This right. is uh, close to Vladivostok. 
you know, in the wintertime, when you take a cup of boiling water, you throw it into the air, it turns into ice when it hits the ground. Oh, yeah. But this is that area, the Northeast is also uh, is also the base of not just Chinese artillery and small arms manufacturing, but it's also the base of the Chinese shipbuilding industry and not just any normal ships, but warships. I remember like back then I, I had um, I was working on stories and I was already going through the U.S. military process. So I was like getting my security clearance. Right. And uh, I mean, that that itself was a different was a, is a separate story, like me trying to get a security clearance and, and going overseas and having to report all the places that I've been to. But then walking through the halls and seeing like all these PLA things on the hall and going like, huh great i'm applying for an american security clearance i'm sure this freaking looks amazing on my on my uh, sf86 documents <laughs> but anyways i i digress i digress um so you're saying that it sounds like the the factories up in the northeast have closed down but the only one that is producing is in the south and it's not really producing at at a huge capacity like it used to be no no i i think the demand for AK rifles has definitely gone down in other parts. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe they're getting it from Romania. You know, Romania, you know, right now is a big player too in terms of oh, AK yeah. rifles. Yeah. Yeah. People don't oh. realize it, but back in the day the stereotype of the Type 56 being spammed worldwide, nowadays really it, people really ought to be looking at the Romanian AK oh, yeah. the they're Romanian AKM. Right yeah. Yeah, they they are the ones who really spam those things and um some interesting places and and that you would that you would find them from afar they look the same as as a russian akm you know Uh, but nowadays you could start telling the difference from the way they cast the gas blocks and little small little little small time-saving techniques that they've that they've made right right if we're looking back at what the chinese government thought about doing back post sino vietnamese war era uh, and they were trying to modernize the PLA. They were trying to open their market and basically get more income to modernize the society and bring more wealth in the society. And the Type 56 being that baseline in order to enable that, I feel like they, I feel like they succeeded. Oh yeah, for sure. For and the sure. key, the key to this seems to be the Type 56. Well, I would say that's it played a pretty major part. It uh, pretty it played a major part in the economic growth for sure because it was the right product. It was the right product for the time. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, you had the supply and you also had the demand. So you put one and one together. Magic. Exactly. Yeah. Profit. I think if we go way back, the blue, uh, the the blue, not the blue, um, the steel making process what's really kind of propel China into a different country. Like I said in the beginning, from agriculture country to a semi-industrialized country. I think that's a major key turning points was the was the making of steel. Steel was the base of everything, you know, to make mm-hmm. a great gun. So it, it came down to the knowledge for the raw materials uh, that really propelled everything. Right. Uh, but then, furthermore, I would say then having the capital to de- to develop that, right? All right. So, Dave, once again, thank you so much for shedding some light on the Type Fifty Six 
and its economic impact in China and the world. Uh, but everybody out there, if you wanted to chat with Dave or his staff about any Kalashnikov things, either you, if you're in the Las Vegas area, you could check him out at Peacemakers Firearms, or you can look him up online, uh, Facebook, Instagram, wherever, for Peacemakers Firearms. Dave, anything else? Um, thank you for having me, Henry. Glad to be here. Um, if you guys want to see some older pictures that we had here in the store, um, check out Instagram Peacemaker, the Peacemakers Firearms, and hopefully, hopefully you guys uh, enjoy the content on there. Cool, man. All right. Thank you so much, and thank we you, will see you guys on the range. <laughs>